doesn't do you much good to know where you want to be if you don't know where you are to begin with because point at the map all you want and say I want to be here I want to be here I want to be here but you don't know what way to go unless you figure out where you are first yeah uh, a lot of times people are trying to escape from where they actually are welcome to 242 a podcast of the Buffalo Vineyard Church where we discuss topics that matter to our lives as followers of King Jesus I'm talking with Nathan Forschler we talk about Afghan freedom fighters parenting mental health counseling marriage a lot of topics but the through line is a conversation about courage and the recognition that confronting pain and suffering and taking risks is an essential part of a meaningful life or a joyful life or a happy life i hope you enjoy So you were talking to me about the book that you, this book Masood that you want me to read, um, that I, that I want to read. Yeah. And there was a, like an image or a, a picture in it that you were describing like a scene. Um, yeah. Um, so it was, uh, a news clip from the early nineties of a man named Abin Masood who, um, was a resistance leader against the Soviets in Afghanistan and then fought against the Taliban. Uh, some news reporters were having the opportunity to meet him. It was early 90s camera footage, clip on YouTube, um, shaking hands with a bunch of officials, and then the camera pans down, and I realized at that point that the man's, Masood's three- or four-year-old son had been right alongside him the whole time, uh, right in the middle of this quasi-official meet and greet with a bunch of uh, soldiers and some Western reporters. Um, and it was exceptionally striking to me for a variety of reasons. Um, for one, since, um, since the, the t well, I guess the Taliban takeover of Afghanistan in August. I'd been trying to figure out a little bit about the situation, and the closest that I got was a uh, sense of respect for Masood, and mm. I was trying to figure out the character of his son, and it seemed like the best way to do that was to try to learn more about his father, since there was a lot more to learn about him. There was the question of what's the impact of a, a man on his son when mm. Masood died when his son was just 11 and trying to figure that out. The scene after the pan down to the look at his son was especially compelling. Um, watching Masood lead his son and his son lead Masood, it seemed as though he was a little bit familiar with getting onto helicopters. He was tugging at his dad's hand at one or two points in a way mm. that's especially compelling as a, a man with a son of a similar age. I uh, kind of get used to getting led along by your toddlers <laughs> at different points. Um, and then watching him settle into the helicopter with a bunch of, um, bunch of serious looking grown men, perhaps, and not, not sure of the exact year. And I'm by no means an expert on the political situation at any given moment in Afghanistan, but watching the little boy settle in a, amongst what I must assume were a bunch of grizzled veterans and sit comfortably alongside his father. Um, image that really struck me. I found myself reflecting it, re reflecting on it for weeks afterwards, um, often with a little bit of tearfulness alongside it as I tried to make sense of the situation. Um, Why tearfulness? For a lot of reasons. Um, a lot of reasons. Uh, I'm trying to just need a moment to figure out which one I want to go with first. Um, I think one of, the, one of the things that came to mind again and again is something that you were mentioning perhaps a year ago during 
um, some of your sermons about the impact that fathers have on sons. I think at some mm-hmm. point you had an image up on the church PowerPoint of uh, um, a side-by-side picture of a rapper and his son who okay. played him in a movie. And oh, yeah, we, okay. We take on our, our parents' image. Mm. Um, and I think as, as a father and as a son, really powerful to me i think also desiring some sense of hope for the situation in afghanistan yeah the hopes that if 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 ahmed masood was half the man it seems like he might have been and if his son is half the man his father was then there's still a lot of hope Mm. that speaks to something that's been a theme in my life and actually impacted the middle name of my eldest son. Mm. uh, First name's Emmanuel and his middle name is Remnant. After that, that last little scrap of something that's left when you think it's gone completely. Uh, And I think that those remnants matter a whole lot. so many different circumstances, whether it's environmentally, uh, socially, personally. Which, uh, one of the things that we were planning to talk about before right. <laughs> I well, you, handed you, that book off to you was my... You brought a book in, man. Yeah, I brought a book. Well, <laughs> I mean, I, all things are connected. So. Yep, they are circle into some of the original originally scheduled programming or we can take it from there <laughs> depending on how the spirit leads us yeah but right i think personally and professionally in my work as a mental health counselor sometimes what i find myself looking for alongside the patients that i work with are those exceptions those times when things went well those times when they experienced a sense of hope because mm. there was a scrap of something meaningful and trying to figure out ways to feed that sense of hopefulness. Yeah. How does that, man, there's a lot there. So first of all, your description of that, that scene, Mm -hmm. it feels really compelling to me. (laughs) You're Um, also a father and a son. Right. With sons. Right. But I don't know that I can totally put my finger on all the reasons why it's compelling. Mm. I mean, there is the, the impact of a father on a son is compelling. Like that's something where it's like, okay, I I understand that. But also, you know, the, like the inclusion of his son in some of those moments or in some of those experiences, that's also compelling. And I mean, I guess it seems to me, I don't know if I had totally put my finger on me. I, I think part of it is I know how meaningful. I mean, this is probably true for women too, but I, I'm just thinking like as a young man or a young boy to be included in the circle of like manhood, to be included in the circle of men, you know, mm-hmm. and how, how like the effect that it has, that it had on me to have some of those experiences and the effect that I see it having on young boys or young men is it, um, like it calls them into something that they aren't yet. Right. It kind of says to them, no, this, this, you are, you're not a man yet. You are a man now, or you're not a man yet, but you will be a man someday. And you know, you, you play with toys, but someday you'll actually take on real responsibilities or you've been playing with toys, but now it's time to take on, real responsibilities. I don't know. There's again, I, I like just to hear you describe that scene. Mm -hmm. I don't know. There's, there's a lot of compelling things about it. And again, particularly as you're describing, you know, you just, you described Masood to me more Mm -hmm. than, um, than just in this conversation and your description of him is as a man of great character and strength. And so to add that to the picture, you know, somebody who is an, a man to be honored and respected because of his, um, 
the, his capacity for like doing what is difficult, but what is necessary. You know, mm-hmm. that's kind of like the description you you've given of him with, you know, and you, you've read the book more than I have, but mm-hmm. a willingness to see things through to the, yeah. the bitter end. Yeah. Um, but, but to have that man being the one that's like inviting his son into manhood, even as a young boy, mm-hmm. like that's super compelling. Yeah. Yeah. So that, yeah. Yeah, there's one of the snippets in the book is about um, Masood had been married in secret. Mm. And, Why? Uh, uh, the, to seems to have been to hide his wife. I'm not sure. I guess it probably would have been to hide her from the Taliban. Okay, because um, he was a target. Because he was a, he was he was the target. Yeah, um, seems to have been that way with the resistance against the Russians as well. Mm. Um, and all of a sudden, a few months, well, perhaps a year later, they noticed him carrying this baby boy everywhere. Huh. Um, that's crazy. And they thought it was maybe a nephew or something like that. And then later as time went on and things were figured out, they realized it was his son. Yeah. Made it all click. Um, Yeah. How did you come across this book? Uh, watching news clips um, back in August and then um, heard that the vice president of Afghanistan had retreated to a valley outside Kabul and then looked into that valley a little bit more and that was the valley that um, Masood held against the Russians and then the Taliban. Gotcha. And was kind of disappointed by the lack of initial context in the news. It made it sound a lot less, a lot, a lot. Made it sound a lot more hopeless mm. than it needed to be, because uh, that valley held out against the Russians for. 10 years and, and the Taliban for 10 years. Um, it's, it's a pretty impressive resume. Yeah. Um, so I looked into it more. And took a huge fascination in Masood and then was trying to find books on him. There aren't too many out there. Yeah. Uh, there's another the one that we were talking about was titled My Mar- Masood by Marcella Grad and then there's a recently published one, um, Masood the Af- no, uh, Afghan Napoleon, um, mm-hmm. by Sandy Gall, who is a, like a, he's from the UK, a reporter who knew him personally. Gotcha. Um, and then there's another one out there that I thought I found an English copy of, but it might only be in French called Masood the Afghan. I'd have to, Struggle through that one. Read some French can you, novels. You can read in French. Oh, wow. Okay. In high school, but it was comprehension was 50 50. So maybe with Google Translate, <laughs> I can derive some content from it. I didn't realize you had that much French in you. It, it's, it depends. Depends yeah. on the accent. <laughs> That's funny. And, and my own state of mind. Yeah, right. So. Oh, my gosh. Huh. Well, so I guess like. I mean, we could spend a lot more time exploring Masood, but oh. I'm like you, you brought up how, you know, so what, what we had originally wanted to talk about, mm-hmm. and I think we still can, cause I do think there's a connection is, you know, the work that you do as a counselor, <clears throat> as a mental health counselor, um, and also the relationship between that and I guess courage, like that's, mm-hmm. that's my word. I can't remember if that's the word you used. That works. Um, but just like, um, working to help other people develop courage, yeah. right? Um, which is an idea you and I have talked about before. And I think that in my mind, there's a really clear connection between that picture and the life of Masood, his relationship with his son and, um, you know, the work that you're doing and how at least in part you've begun to frame some of the work that you do with at least some of your clients as helping them to develop courage. Mm. 
Um, and then even, you know, you, you brought up again, just you, part of why Masood is so striking for you. And I would agree part of why that picture is so striking for me is because we are fathers mm-hmm. who are actually attempting to do in a very intentional way, that same kind of work with our son, with our, I mean, I have a daughter too, yeah. um, but with our children of developing courage in them. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. So it seems like there's like that. Yeah. We could talk about that. There's so many things. I mean, how, <laughs> yeah. uh, well, so I'll let you pick how I much like I've said a lot already. Normally I, I try to get people to talk so and I, say as little as possible. I know. Right. <laughs> well, so that, that's what I was going to ask. Maybe, yeah. maybe this would be a good pivot to just talk a little bit about your work. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe just describe what you do. Um, and so if you, if you just answer the question, what you do, uh, but then also like how much of what you're doing or trying to accomplish fits into that framework of like trying to help people develop courage. So what do you just practically, uh, what do you yeah, do? What do I do for people I, who are like, yeah. what do you do all day? What do you do all day? <laughs> what do I do all day, all day. <laughs> oh, I thought you only wanted to know about the eight hours I was at work. <laughs> um, so I work as a mental health counselor, uh, with a local organization, um, I meet with on a normal week, um, be t- twenty or so individuals um, for counseling sessions. Normally, last about forty-five minutes. Um, general diagnoses for these individuals would be a, a lot of anxiety depression related diagnoses um some few with diagnoses related to mood fluctuation bipolar um and there's all often a bit of trauma mixed in with any one of those three diagnoses there's probably one or one or two other (laughs) diagnoses in there but that uh sums it up is there a particular demographic that you end up working with a lot or is that all over the place? Um, it's all over the place. They, mm-hmm. they keep pushing me to try to choose some sort of specialty and I <laughs> prefer to stay away from substance use counseling for a variety of reasons. One of which is just personal comfort, but I kind of say that I kind of enjoy just to find meaning in working with a variety of problems and sometimes almost the, the more normal, the more interesting it is, the more you can kind of pick into those little details if you're meeting with the right, right patient. Yeah. And then, yeah, I guess that's, that's probably, we can, we can dig deeper into like what you do, mm-hmm. but how much of what you are doing in your work with those, with those patients, would you say falls into that category of like trying to help them develop courage? Mm. Um, if we, if we zoom out a little bit more and we look at courage as something that requires hope, Mm. say that all of it has to do with, with trying to find some sense of hope. Interesting. Um, it seems like if you've. feel too overwhelmed to be hopeful you need the courage to take a risk on hoping for something yeah um, yeah i think i think I, my my thought process tends to be just a, a medley of different different snippets from different books and anecdotes from conversations and different movies and i when I think of what I want to be trying to do with counseling, I often think of a a scene from near the very end of a movie titled Kingdom of Heaven. It probably yeah. came out around 2000. Uh, it's Mason, been a long time uh, since Lando I've seen Blue. it, but yeah. 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 Um, and uh, the end of the movie, they're facing overwhelming odds and uh, Orlando Bloom, who plays the hero, is... Uh, talking with a bishop and 
about the defense of the city and the bishop's trying to convince him to give up hope and he says to him but you don't have any, we don't have any knights and the Orlando Bloom character looks around and commands that every man with an earshot of him kneel and he knights a whole crowd of them and the bishop asks him just making a man a knight make him a better fighter and there's a some dramatic music rises in the background <laughs> Orlando Bloom gives him a steely-eyed yes and then it's game time um, so I uh, part of my mind that's drawn to the fantastical likes to think about knighting people um, <laughs> there's a bunch of knights running around the west side oh no <laughs> all in the wake but of it's that, I think it's that idea sword. of <laughs> if you guys were yeah. in here if for those of you listening nathan's face just got really happy yeah oh happy <laughs> try to keep something secret <laughs> a lot of things secret oh um, that's awesome i think it's that idea of passing on power mm. yeah the, the more power you pass on to people the i guess the more power you have I sure know, yeah. but and hopefully you keep passing it on some extent i try to think of my work in mental health as trying to help people become more powerful i like the word dangerous um yeah i like all that yeah what so part of the conversation that we had i don't even remember if this was six months ago or a year ago or two years ago i can't remember remember this fall yeah was like some of that, like what you just articulated, you had shared with me, but it also seemed like it was almost in contrast with like a different approach to counseling that you either had experienced or were, I, don't, I can't remember exactly the. Yeah. I think there was, um, there, well, when we were talking about having this conversation to begin with, there was a set of illustrations that you right. mentioned and that, that might be a way into it, but I think that, um, like any field, there's a tremendous amount of variety that you get within mental health counseling. There's a variety of different approaches that people have, and I think that depending on who a counselor is meeting with, might work for one person, might not work for another. So I just want to be careful not to discredit That's fair. anyone's way of doing anything or anyone's experiences. Not everybody needs a sword. Mm. <laughs> right now okay. maybe That's eventually awesome. uh, so symbolically and metaphorically if you're out there and you want a sword give nathan a call no. and if you're out there and you don't want a sword just wait and then give nathan a call uh, don't call me call someone else <laughs> uh, well but so what and uh, i mean fair enough like that caveat that you know you're you're you don't want to disparage other mm-hmm. kind of like modes of engaging in counseling but Mm. but again what you had shared was that there was something that you were yeah i think the the issue that i was struggling with is that it there's seems to be just a tremendous amount of focus on on coping skills on ways of dealing with stress which definitely has its place and is a useful way to um help calm yourself down help yourself regroup uh, and get to the point where you can understand things better but seems as though sometimes treatment gets boiled down to just pushing coping skills or pushing some formulaic treatment modality and not a big uh, formula person. Mm. Uh, When I was in my internship, I was talking with my supervisor about this and he said to just tell people I'm an integrationist. So (laughs) extremely zealous. What what does that mean? Uh, just a mixture of different ways of gotcha. doing things. Um, so that's your that's your philosophy, your mental health philosophy. For now. For now. <laughs> just hold the right to recant everything I'm saying right now. So Become an apostate uh, integrationalist? Who knows? We'll see. <laughs> um, that's awesome. So uh, the illustration that we were mentioned a little while ago, I set it up in a quadrant and... Uh, started off um, 
first the first column was um, two illustrations, what we want from counseling and what counseling actually looks like. And this I think, would go for both the counselors and the people that they're meeting with. And um, for the idea of what we want from counseling, I think I had a rather hasty sketch of uh, a rather cliche bearded man on a mountaintop saying something to someone as they walked up. And if I could work out exactly what he would be saying, I would just be saying that all the time. But my current rough draft of what he might be saying is something along the lines of, together we will discover the path of hope. Mm. That would be the illustration for what we want counseling to look like, a collaborative experience um, focused on creating that sense of hopefulness. Um, and then below that, I had an illustration of what counseling actually looks like, <laughs> and I had a rather frazzled-looking individual in a ramshackle chair with a computer blowing smoke, all bug-eyed and <laughs> hair about to fall out. Imagine it in somewhat raspier, strained voice saying, do you want to learn coping skills? <laughs> and so that was the f- first half of the paper. And then the next half focused on my speculation about what each of those different approaches produces. Mm. At this point, it became even more fanciful. Uh, but <laughs> the the image of what was produced by the first image of the man on the mountaintop, um, calm and at peace, seeking a collaborative experience of discovering a sense of hopefulness, hopefully uh, produces something powerful. The image that I could think of for that was a individual, a sword and shield, standing on top of a pile of recently slain dragons with Mm. more dragons swooping in and one of the dragon's jaws about to close on, close down around him, calmly and confidently saying, even now I'm at peace. Mm. Um, Speaks to that ability to hopefully accept the very worst and retain a sense of hopefulness. And the other image, the one connected to the burnt out counselor and <laughs> the coping desperately skills. pushing coping skills, <laughs> uh, was uh, my imagination went to a, a dairy cow in a stall um, with a bunch of spiteful little goblins surrounding it, and its udders hooked up to some uncomfortably rusty and mechanical looking milk machine and thinking bubble coming from the cow's head saying, I am content in this stall. (laughs) Um, um, To one extent, well, nobody's, nobody's experience with counseling is, patient or counselor ends up <laughs> fitting any any one of those four extremes. Right. And so it's important to recognize that everything's in the middle, so it's rather hyperbolic. Um, yeah. It circles back to what we were talking about, the, the hope of helping people become more, more powerful. Uh, yeah. It circles back to that. That question, that that call to personal accountability, wondering what that looks like, brings to mind that I often think about the the parable of the prodigal son from the other side. Um, Grew up in the church. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Church has always been part of my life. I guess I prefer to say that faith has always been part of my life. Um, and so I never identified all that much with the prodigal, not that there aren't ways in which I sure. need to circle back because there certainly are, but I think the words from that parable that ring through my head are um, the father's words to his eldest son when he seems bitter. He says, but 
I've always had you with me. What's mine is yours. Sometimes we seem the most, we respond with the most hostility and the most bitterness. It's because we're forgetting that we have access to everything. All, all of the wealth that our Heavenly Father has to offer. Seems like that's that's the other trap illustrated in that story. And uh, looks like you've got some questions, and I'm starting to run out of words. So <laughs> I'm going to take the moment to regroup and get a sip of water. <laughs> yeah, while get a sip of water. Uh, as always, when I talk to you, Nathan, you share things that <clears throat> are dripping with meaning. So there's like a lot of directions we could go in. Um, I'll let you pick. Right. Well, so, yeah, I guess I want to go back to not, not to leave the parable or the, um, the words from the parable or the, that you were pointing out and the significance for you, but just that, um, I guess like that comparing and contrasting of those two different pictures of, um, what, what counseling could be, um, and those two different pictures of what those two different approaches can produce because I, I do see in that, um, I guess just broader application to lots of other areas of life, like beyond, beyond just mental health counseling. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, again, particularly as, as you, you and I, as people who are raising human beings and, mm. you know, mine are older than yours, but it's, it's still this process of, you know, one person or two people or a community of people trying to help another human being become formed into, you know, ho hopefully in your words, a powerful person, a good person. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's our role is that that's, that's what it means to be a father. Right. Mm. <clears throat> I mean, there's other part, there's other, you know, there's like making sure they're fed and clothed and that kind of stuff too. But really at, at its essence, those are a function, those are functions of the fact that I'm called to shape my children into the kind of people that God wants them to be. And so are you. Mm. And I do feel like what I see in our world and even what I see, maybe I could even even say in myself um, or in my wife and I as, as a couple, as a team that are attempting to do that is like those two visions. There's probably more than two, but those two visions are present. Um, you know, I've worked hard. My wife and I have worked hard to try and raise, you know, three children who will stand on a pile of slain dragons and shout defiantly at the, the dragons that are coming on. Like that's definitely the, 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 the attempt that we've made is like, Hey, let's do that. Let's raise those kinds of kids. But also, you know, if, if we're honest, if I'm honest, there are ways where it's like, well, let's just keep them in the stall, mm. you know? Um, but again, at least I feel like my wife and I, we haven't, we haven't used this picture cause you just shared it with me recently and we haven't used that, that metaphor, but, um, but we have made that as like a conscious, it's like, no, no, no. We want to raise powerful, strong, capable, courageous, good human beings who are, um, you know, engaging forthrightly in the world in spite of the mm -hmm. fact that there's danger and we don't want to, you know, raise um, you know, children who will become adults who are safe and able to cope with the dangers of the world by getting comfortable in their stall. Like that's mm -hmm. not, that's not what we want to do. So that's, that's like, we've, we've had to wrestle with that, but we've made a decision in there consciously. What I see going on in our world is oftentimes people making the unconscious decision to go in the other direction. Mm. Um, and that's, definitely true when it comes to the way we think about raising kids. Mm -hmm. It's also true. I think, I mean, I guess this kind of sort of goes into raising kids when you think about schools. Um, but even just in the way that we expect, I don't know, things like work to function or 
different institutions to operate. You know, it's like, well, no, 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 we need to, like we're going, it seems like there is a, a an impulse in us as people to pursue that path of formation that looks like being comfortable mm-hmm. in a stall. I don't know. What do you think about that? Do you think that that's like, am I reading too much into that or? Um, are you reading too much into the tendency of people to seek Coping. comfort over courage? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's what I'm asking. Um, like how, yeah. how widely do you see that at play? In I'm never a good person to ask about the culture at large. No. When my patients ask me about some, I just regularly tell people that I live under a rock. So <laughs> I, I only, I only crawl out from under that rock occasionally. So that's fair. Also got a few years on me and probably have a much broader view of. No, that's um, fair. The progression of culture at large. Um, I can probably engage with it more. Um, <laughs> who knows? I think that th- but, on this question, yeah. what, what has caused me to think about it the most is the way in which culture impinges on my role as a father. Mm -hmm. That's the place where I've had to deal with this the most is there are so many other um, influences on my children's character. And in this particular place, I feel like there are lots and lots and lots of people and institutions Mm -hmm. and voices and forces trying to turn all three of my children into the cow in the stall. Yeah. I think, One of my, I go through different phases, things that I say again and again while I'm at work to the people that I meet with. And Mm. one of my recent favorites has been uh, pointing out that there's a really big difference between comfort and happiness. And if we think about somebody who's sort of the stereotypical image of depressed, there's an incredible amount of physical comfort. Mm. (laughs) Cliche images of somebody in their pajamas, sitting on a couch, eating junk food watching TV, there's a, a lot of comfort there. Yeah. It's almost complete comfort. Like, what, what could you do to make that better? I guess you could put it on a beach, but then there'd be wind and sand, so it wouldn't be nearly as comfortable on a beach. Yeah. Um, but what you're saying is that maybe if you add a dragon, it would be happier. <laughs> <laughs> you're putting words in my mouth. <laughs> um <laughs> I think that happiness seems to require hoping for something. Okay. And hope takes risks and those risks involve the chance of disappointment. Mm. Um, Sort of that image of that, that I painted of that depressed individual that involves going out and trying something different besides sitting on the couch, watching TV Um, and going out of your house isn't always safe. It's a risk. Perhaps Perhaps you have an interaction with somebody that's really discouraging. Um, perhaps you get your hopes up and you get your motivation up and it turns out that it was summer yesterday, but it's winter today. Um, <laughs> Spoken like anybody, a Buffalonian. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I, I kind of like, like the variety of weather. Saying I'm, not, I'm hoping summer comes, but <laughs> I, I can work with it, but I'm a, I'm a weird one. Um, Um, risk mm-hmm. that I think another thing that I often point out is that a, a lot of things that we do for fun involve a certain amount of risk um, a certain amount of stress r- rooting for a sports team yeah. a lot of people get really into it I'm not the biggest uh, sports person but yeah. there's a risk the team will lose somehow that makes that more meaningful um stories whether they're on a screen or in a book or somebody's telling them there's the chance that it doesn't turn out the way you hoped um but relationships relationships (laughs) are a huge risk sometimes a repeated risk again and again you're misunderstood by somebody that you're hoping to be close to yeah 
but those also seem to be whether it's stories or sports teams or relationships, things that we often connect to happiness. Yeah, for sure. So what I'm hearing you say is that happiness isn't possible without risk. Happiness as opposed to comfort. Um, seems like, seems like the way we live right now. Happiness requires risk. Yeah. 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 I, so I don't remember where this, excuse me, shouldn't have done that in the microphone. I I don't remember where this definition came from. It's not mine. Mm -hmm. And it was, I mean, this is semantics, but it was like, I've often thought of joy more in the way that you're talking about the word happiness. Mm-hmm. Um, again, that's just semantics, but the, Might the be a better, better word choice. W- yeah, whatever. <laughs> I mean, it's fine. Um, I, I can get really nitpicky about language, but also I'm not really that nitpicky about language. I, it's important to choose the right words because we're trying to communicate to other people mm-hmm. and word choice really helps or hinders in the process of communication but beyond that, I don't, I don't really care too much about getting the words just right, you mm-hmm. know? Um, anyway, I so respect pickiness with words. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, so some the, a definition I came across for joy is that it's pleasure that is connected to deep meaning. Mm-hmm. So it's like, again, like it's like, so happiness, comfort, joy, like those are all things that in some way, shape or form are pointing at a pleasurable experience for us. Right. Mm-hmm. But that what makes joy unique or different than happiness, um, is that it's, it's connected to something meaningful. Whereas like happiness doesn't necessarily have to be, or, you know, just like pleasure doesn't necessarily have to be meaningful. It could just feel good. But when it feels good because it's something deeply significant, then that's really what joy is. And the unique thing about meaning is that meaning the, the things that we find meaningful are either meaningful because well they're always meaningful because they're things that we're willing to sacrifice for greatly that's what it means mm-hmm. to say something is meaningful to us or it matters to us or is important to us is that either we have sacrificed for it or we're willing to or we're currently sacrificing for it right that's that's what well, so in economic terms, the value of a thing is the cost of the thing, right? Mm-hmm. It's like, and you could, you could translate that into like emotional, the emotional value of this is what it costs me to have it. Or like, what are the value of your children to you? Well, what, like, what have you sacrificed for them? You know what I mean? Like that's their worth to you. Right. Mm-hmm. And that I'm not talking really about money, although that too, it's like, what have I given up to be married? Well, that's the value of my marriage is mm-hmm. what I've been willing to jettison in my life so that I could have this marriage to my wife, that's its value. That's its worth. That's its meaning. And so like meaning in some shape, in some way is connected to like sacrifice and risk. And Mm -hmm. like, you know what I mean? Like there's that connection there, but then to talk about joy as like this pleasure that you have, that's connected to the meaning of your life or the meaning of a moment or whatever. It's like this weird place where like sacrifice and pleasure come together or even pain and pleasure come together in a unique way. Mm -hmm. Um, which that's definitely more what I see you pointing at when you're pointing at, you know, like standing yeah. atop a mound of dragon corpses and like more dragons are coming. And it's like, yeah, this is, yeah, I don't know. Like, yeah. and again, regardless of whether you call that joy or happiness or yeah. whatever, but, but that there is something to that where there's this real, and again, you use the word risk mm-hmm. that, that, that kind of happiness that you're describing, whatever word we want to put on top of that risk risk has got to be a part of it. You have to be willing to risk if you want to experience that kind of happiness or that kind of joy. Mm-hmm. So I think I'm just saying what I heard you say a different way, but that's great. Yeah. yeah. I think the word happiness does have a certain shallowness to it or easily become shallow. Um, yeah. It's like joy is, is happiness with a foundation. That'll work. Um, happiness is a hot air balloon, huh? 
easily blown away by the wind. Can be. It's getting rather ecclesiastical. Yes. <laughs> My wife was quoting Ecclesiastes at me this morning. Oh. Yeah, that's funny. I think that's, she She enjoys, I mean, it's one. I, I shouldn't say it's one of her favorite books, but okay. she definitely likes it. Huh. Well, so what does that mean practically that risk or sacrifice um, or even suffering mm-hmm. are an essential or maybe an inescapable part of a happy or a joyful life? So, I mean, what does that mean in, in practical terms? And I mean, I don't know. You can answer that. That's a cosmic question. No, I know it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm not not asking you, like, just to clarify, I'm not asking you because you're the expert. I'm just asking you because that's what we're talking about. Mm. Like, what does that mean practically, both, you know, your mental health counselor, dad, you're a human being, right? Husband, like, there's all of these different places where you could think about how that shakes out practically. But yeah, I don't know. What are some of the practical implications of that? She asked the question again because it was a big yeah. enough one that I was just scared and <laughs> flinched and tried to dodge it. Ah, uh, Don't ask me that. <laughs> right. I, I, when I'm at work and, and uh, um, when my patients ask me, like, how are you doing? I'm always thrown off. <laughs> I, 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 hey, I asked the questions. I asked the questions, right? Like, I, I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to have to answer anything. <laughs> Who do you think you are, buddy? <laughs> I think you should totally respond like that. I would appreciate yeah. it if my counselor responded to me that way. Hey, 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 hey. I get paid the big bucks. I ask the questions. <laughs> you sit over there and you just answer my questions. Yeah. Uh, so let's see. The question was, what are the practical ramifications of what we're talking about? You know, so if, if risk is, an essential part of a meaningful life. If Mm -hmm. suffering is an essential part of a a joyful life, what does that mean practically? Mm -hmm. I think there's, when we were were talking before this, before we started recording, I um, mentioned how I'm used to thinking in terms of individuals. Something that comes to mind first is the idea that if you're, if you're east of the kingdom of God, you need to go west. And if you're west mm. of the kingdom of God, you need to go east. So I find myself that the, in a practical sense, so much of this depends on where an individual is at. No, that's that's good. I, I think I know what you mean by that. But unpa- like, talk more about that. What do you mean by that? Um, ask me some more specific questions. What are so you said it depends on kind of the starting point that the individual's at. What are some starting points that you've seen yeah. in clients, in your kids, in yourself, mm. in friends that kind of represent east or west or north or south? Mm. And then what does it look like to move in the right direction? Okay. Yeah. I think the first thing that comes to mind is something that um the my supervisor for the internship that I had when I was first starting to get into counseling told me to do and that was to always act opposite that if somebody's <laughs> if somebody's moving really fast try to th- slow things down if somebody's mm. moving um really slow try to speed things up I tend to actually be kind of a slow-paced person so i a lot more times find myself trying to slow down fast-paced people <laughs> if i need to work on trying to speed people up but um seems that either one of those is a desire to avoid discomfort. There's a couple individuals that I meet with where there's there's a lot of talking. Um, I described it to one individual as though he's always trying to use words to paint over his feeling, his feelings, what's actually going on beneath the surface. Sometimes, in his case, it involves setting down that paintbrush and really taking a look at the spot of rust that he's trying to paint over. Lot of things in his life that he wished happened differently, that he wishes he did differently. Um, and first, accepting that that rust is there. One of my favorite metaphors to use with mental health counseling 
what's off the idea of a, a map um, and that when you're when you're lost I imagine this in a, in a foreign city um, the first thing you got to do is you got to figure out where you are it doesn't do you much good to know where you want to be if you, if you don't know where you are to begin with because point at the map all you want and say I want to be here I want to be here I want to be here um, but you don't know what what way to go unless you figure out where you are first yeah I think that a lot of times people are trying to escape from where they actually are there's a lot of denial mm. um, I think some ways that you see that with somebody who's moving too slowly perhaps struggling with depression is um trying to avoid a sense of shame, a sense of risk through isolating themselves, mm. um, through believing that outcomes are certain when maybe something will turn out a certain way nine times out of ten, but the one time that it does work out counts for a whole lot. Yeah. Um, it seems that there's a social component to so many people's mental health. Um, and find myself thinking about relationships, you know, that it's like, well, you need, you need a few good relationships that work, but most of the people that you cross paths with in life, you're not going to be able to have a meaningful relationship with. You can't expect to be liked by everybody. Um, but sometimes figuring out people that you can have a meaningful relationship with takes the risk of trying to initiate relationships that don't work out it's romantically or with friends um, and accepting that risk. Until you accept that risk, you, you're never going to have it. Yeah. No, those are some, I, I think the, I'm still, like, a lot of what you said was. Yeah. I know I drifted a lot, too. No, no, so. that's good. It's, it's fine. Drifting is good. Drifting is welcome. But, yeah, what where you, where I think you start, well, I don't know if you started there, but you, you were talking a little bit about denial <clears throat> as one of the, so, like, not living in a state of denial and having a willingness to confront like where we're at mm. and, or even to def define where we're at to find our place on the map, so to speak mm -hmm. is one of the practical applications of what we're talking about mm. in that, you know, that requires r risk, pain, suffering, sacrifice to actually really come to terms with mm -hmm. who we are, who we're not, where we are, and the fact that it's not where we want to be and to really like come to terms with that. Yeah. No, that, I think that's, that's good. Or it's not good in the sense that it is, <laughs> it's like, Oh, that's, <laughs> that's pleasant. But no, I think I mean, that's significant. Yeah. yeah. That's helpful. Are there, are there ways that, um, this, like how, how would you point at this in your parenting? The fact that, and I, well, so I mm -hmm. guess, you know, so you're, you have said, we have said together, I agree hundred percent. Like, I think we're on the same page about the, the, what we're talking about that, um, pain, risk, sacrifice are, um, cannot be avoided and should be confronted and embraced mm -hmm. if one wants to have a, um, happy, joyful life, mm -hmm. right? how does that shape the way you, you parent? I mean, cause obviously you're not like, all right, sacrifice and pain is good. Let me punch you in the face, son. You know, you're not just like, throwing uh, we them do do quite it. a bit of rough housing. Fair enough. Yeah. But, but you do, you you've do, seen pull, me, you've seen me on your trampoline. I have, <laughs> but you do pull your punches. You're not, you're not just <laughs> no. knocking them. Yeah. But so that's what I mean. Like you're obviously we're not talking about being some sort of like sadistic father. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, like I'm going to make you tough by putting out cigarettes on your arm. You know, like that's mm -hmm. not, Clearly what we're talking No, not at all. Just to clarify. Be some right? CPS not, calls there. Exactly. But but so how how but but at the same time, like so like what does that look like practically? You're you know, your father raising raising kids. So it's like, all right, how do you because there is a role as a dad, particularly like the the younger the, the child, mm -hmm. you know, there there really does need to be protecting them from danger. And yet at the same time, how do you balance that with um you know, allowing them to, to experience the joy that we're talking about by also, you know, entertaining the risk, experiencing the pain and the sacrifice, even, mm. you know, and again, I would imagine, no, it, I know it looks different for a three-year-old than a 15-year-old or for mm -hmm. the parent of a three-year-old, 
versus the parent of a 15 year old. But what does that look like for you as a father? What does it look like for me to believe that pain and suffering are inevitable and that's part of forming a healthy and powerful human being? Mm -hmm. Um, Tremendously in the process of figuring that out as I go, (laughs) to be totally fair. Um, I think I'm always trying to gauge gauge where my sons are at and trying to be preemptive and proactive with how I feel about what they're doing and so that I have plenty of time to think about what I want to shape and what I want to reward um, and they're still so little it's hard to figure that out I mean, really <laughs> the, the most practical of that it is at this point is occasionally uh, well occasionally his older son really likes his little strider bike and there's been some times where he just can't go outside so he's at the door with his helmet on which he actually will wear for half the day anyway <laughs> um oh, standing, on, standing on his bike and crying because it's not time to go outside <laughs> but there's a lot we're still figuring out there yeah um and i think that circles around the importance of validation um um, is a huge part of the way that i approach mental health counseling um i think when i think about counseling the counseling relationship a therapeutic relationship there's sort of a hierarchy that i have for things i think that uh first of all it's a relationship and there's a whole lot that we could unpack about that but we'll skip over that for the sake of time and after being a relationship the, the next thing on the list is that it's boundaried there's there's limits uh, that pr- provides a sense of protection and stability um for both the counselor and, and the patient yeah. um but next on the list i would say that it's it's validating um that well the the sprouts that get sunlight are the sprouts that grow. And a lot of the research around mental health and counseling tends to back up some really soft stuff that's <laughs> that's hard to make methodological. I know that um, well, the number one determinant of successful counseling is the therapeutic relationship. Um, <laughs> Good luck operationalizing that. Right. Or that uh, validation is much more effective at shaping behavior than punishment. Um, I think lots of times when we think about validation, it's easy to imagine it being too much over the top. You know, that sort of, yeah, we'll talk about the everybody gets a trophy generation. It doesn't have to be that. I actually think that um, babies are great. They use validation really well. Because um, mm. apparently if, if you smile just right, people will feed you, people will do everything <laughs> for you, people will wipe your, wipe your butt for you. You, you just got to figure out the right smile, right? But, but smiles are incredibly validating. <clears throat> I'm going to go home um, and try that on my family. I mean, you, you got you to gotta really work at it. It's got to have like a certain authenticity. <laughs> mm. I think it uh, might require a little bit more. I'm going to spend the afternoon. Maybe practicing. perhaps the only, the only, only the innocence that an infant possesses. <laughs> yeah, Steve, sorry. You lost that 20, <laughs> yeah. uh, 45 years ago, whatever it was. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I think during, during my counseling sessions, whether I, uh, during my counseling sessions, a question that I often ask myself afterwards when I do the notes is, did I validate something? that the person's doing did i commend something that they're doing that's likely to lead towards more hopeful results um and if i can't think of something that always sort of stands out as a a failure in my mind that's like ah that's that's if there's one thing that i'm doing during any meeting that's what i want to be doing is pointing out something that somebody's doing well so just something that occurred to me while you were talking about validation is the relationship between validating people Mm. 
and this idea that we've been talking about really for our whole conversation that, um, you know, uh, suffering and risk is an, an inherent part of a meaningful, joyful life. Mm. How, how does validation fit into that? I mean, because like a glib reading of validation could be almost the opposite of that. Like, no, 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 don't encourage anybody to do anything hard. That's not how I would understand mm-hmm. what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. But like what, like how does validation fit into that idea of helping people confront the risk inherent in a meaningful life, helping people embrace sacrifice mm-hmm. and pain as a part of a joyful, happy life? I mean, through pointing out that they're capable of doing that okay, in small ways in which they do. And that would be validation yeah. is like pointing at the places where they are choosing mm-hmm. rightly or where they have the capacity to be strong and powerful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think, well, in the context of so many of my conversations, I'll consider it, it as validation. Somebody asking some really hard questions saying, wow, you're really willing to ask some really hard questions about yourself and your life experience. I have a lot of respect for that. Yeah. Um, just pointing that out, recognizing that. Yeah, that is. So I'll, I'll share one story. Um, but I could think of lots of moments where either somebody has essentially done that to me, what you're describing, or I've been in a position to do that for somebody else. Mm. Either tell somebody that what they did was powerful and point that out to them or tell somebody that they're capable of doing something powerful, right. Mm-hmm. And point at that. And the one, the one story, and it's kind of funny cause it's got the whole dragon thing going on. Yeah. But, um, I coached a couple of years of baseball just when the kids were littler. Cause I, I actually don't know that much about baseball. And there was a kid on our team. So I was like tracking their, um, some of their stats just to kind of like figure out where to put them in the lineup and kind of mm-hmm. like see if they were like doing better or worse. And there was this kid on the team who was kind of like in the middle of our team in terms of like his ability to hit. And um, then, so then I started like kind of watching him and I was trying to figure out what was going on with him at the plate. And it just became really clear as I started paying attention that he was just afraid of the ball. Mm-hmm. Um which at that age, it's super normal. I think these were under 10. I'm trying to think like eight or nine, something like that. You know, what the heck was the kid's name? I can see his face and his dad's face anyway. So I just remember like the first time I did this, but I ended up doing this like several times, um, like almost like every game before he went to the plate, I would pull him aside and give him this little speech, but I pulled him aside and I said, Hey, like, I can see that you're actually afraid of the ball up there. And he like got like super shameful, you know, mm-hmm. I'm like, it's okay. Like you don't have to be afraid of that or ashamed of that. It's all right. It's, it's natural. Like there's a ball coming at you. It's okay to be afraid of that, you know? And that like, you could think of that like a dragon that's coming at you, mm. right? It can actually hurt you. Right. But here's the thing. You're holding a sword, right? <laughs> and, and you could actually go kill the dragon. And he kind of got this like smirk on his face, right? Mm-hmm. When I told him that. Um, and uh, yeah, like, I mean, again, it wasn't like the fear went away instantly. Right. But, and, and actually I think that's part of what that is, is it's like stepping into an, a, a situation where you could genuinely be hurt. I mean, he wasn't going to get hurt bad, but you could take a ball to the face, Bloody right? Nose, yeah, yeah, right, exactly. Um, it doesn't feel good. And, and there's, so there's fear attached to that. And mm-hmm. like, that's actually a normal response. Yeah. And, but for me to, t- to tell him, Yes, you're stepping into a situation where you could get hurt, but you can handle it and you could do something about it. And it had an effect on him in the moment that I could see and I could feel it. Like it felt really cool to sit like, it. Just, I don't know. There was something in, like you talked earlier about like to pass on power makes you more powerful. Like I totally felt that dynamic in that moment. It was really, it was really, I don't know, it was life giving. It was affirming to me and I was able to speak that to him repeatedly over the course of that season and watch it have an effect on his ability at the plate. Um, yeah, I don't know. So that yeah. it brings to mind the idea that also when it comes to guiding somebody towards a certain way of living, um, there's a time to validate like any step towards the desired behavior. You're not going to, yeah. um, somebody that doesn't know how to walk, isn't going to just jump from the bottom of the stairs to the, 
very top. You got to validate each step along the way. You got to give indications that they're headed in the direction that's going to be best for them to go. Yeah. Yeah. It's a fun story. Yeah. Yeah. Marco. Marco. I can't remember his last name. Hmm. Mm. Well, I don't know. Anything else we should talk about? talked about a lot yeah we have yeah this is a good conversation i enjoyed it yeah me too yes i mean yeah we'll do this again whether whether with headphones on or without okay all right man thanks (laughs) sounds great thank you Two Forty Two is a podcast from buffalo vineyard church in buffalo new york our mission is to teach people the way of king jesus by regularly encountering god training each other in the faith and effectively serving our neighbors This podcast is just one of the many ways we work to realize this. If you'd like to learn more about who we are or get in touch, visit us at buffalovineyard.org. Our theme music is Face to Face from Vineyard Worship. Thank you for listening.